Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz. Did you know that the world needs 9 million more nurses and midwives if it is to achieve universal health coverage by 2030? 2020 is the year of the nurse and the midwife. World Health Assembly has designated 2020 to them because, I quote, These are the people who devote their lives to caring for mothers and children, giving life-saving immunizations and health advice, looking after older people and generally meeting everyday essential health needs. They are often the first and only point of care in their communities. To honor their work and to give them the recognition they need, you will be listening to a few of their stories in the upcoming episodes. This is the first part of a podcast series featuring nurses that mostly do not work in clinical practice anymore because they're using their knowledge gained in nursing to impact healthcare on a decision-making level where they help improve the system bit by bit. Our first speaker is... Shauna Butler, nurse economist and entrepreneurs from the US, currently the host of See You Now podcast, focused on sharing perspective of nurses on healthcare. She is also a member of the core team of the Exponential Medicine team at Singularity University. In the next episode, you will hear from Sherry Ruano from the UK, who is founder of Rhythmia Breath Medical Wellbeing Program and a Rhythmia Specialist Nurse at Imperial College NHS Trust. You know, when I went to pitch the idea to a consultant, um, they listened, but I could also see that there was a sense of lack of trust, I can say, because I was not a doctor. Things changed when I when I became an arrhythmia specialist nurse and when I and when I started working with this very specific type of patients. But still, yes, the fact that I am a nurse sometimes put a few doctors off (laughs) and away from the project. Um, But I know how to deal with that. And I know that sometimes it's all about timing and it's all about, you know, educating the other part that we can do something else, that we do not need to be doctors to be able to be successful. I am an arrhythmia specialist nurse and I do know my sector, I do know the customers. I also spoke with Carmi Soder, who currently lives in Israel. Carmi is former pediatric care nurse with over 25 years of healthcare experience in clinical, administrative and tech, which she gained by serving as chief administrative officer at Sutter Health. She led pediatric department for Kaiser Permanente, worked at Google and co-founded Newborn Solutions Registered Nursing Corporation. I think if you respect that hospitals and medical care, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, specialty, general, whatever type of care it is, it's really a team. And there needs to be a respect for people's roles, their contributions, and what they do for each other and what they do for the patients and families. Another nurse in the series will be Canadian Mary Lou Ackerman, Vice President of Innovation and Digital Health with CE Health, Canada's largest social enterprise. 
Mary Lou is also a founding member of Sonciel, which stands for Society of Nursing Scientists, Innovator and Entrepreneur Leaders. Mary Lou is also an active member of CHIEF, Canada's Health Informatics Executive Forum with Digital Health Canada. More about that in the future episodes, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast to be notified about each of these episodes automatically. Now let's move to the discussion with Shona Butler, who spoke about the current situation healthcare workers have found themselves in due to COVID-19. Shauna mentioned what she learned about nurses through hosting the See You Now podcast. We also touched very human aspects of nursing we don't hear about often, that are the needs and support in end-of-life care. Enjoy the discussion and go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to meet other speakers in this series and browse through older episodes of the podcast as well. No time to meet Shauna. Shauna, hi. It's 2020. It's the year of the nurse and midwives. Let's start there. How do you feel in this special year? And does the fact that nurses and midwives have an international uh, recognition this year, does it mean anything? Yes, the year of the nurse and midwife is incredibly important. When you go back to the origins and really understanding why did the World Health Organization designate 2020 to be the year of the nurse and midwife? There's a little bit of history to that. Part of it was when the UN put together the Sustainable Development Goals. One of the key pieces to that was looking at how do we improve health? How do we improve education? How do we alleviate poverty? And so many of those Sustainable Development Goals, at the core of them, the thread that commonly runs through them is health, health and well-being. And we see that citizens and communities and countries improve when they have access to health care. So this whole concept of universal health care, the more we study that, economists, policymakers recognize that the only way we're going to achieve universal health coverage and is we have to invest in nursing. We have a shortage of nurses. We have nurses who are not being invested in. We have nurses who don't have the level of training that they need in order to manage the complex care, to deliver care that is increasingly becoming connected through digital technologies. We have care that's moving into different spaces. So homes, community centers, uh, schools, you, know, you name it, libraries, truck stops, we're delivering care in all sorts of different places. So between there being needing more nurses better trained, and in addition, their contributions valued and being given safe workplaces. That was where the World Health Organization came through and said, you know, 2020, it is the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale. This is really the moment for us to look at the contributions, but more importantly, the call to action. If we want to improve the health and well-being of people everywhere on the planet, this is where we need to focus our effort. And the other key piece that they outlined for this is a focus on making sure that we move nurses into the most executive levels of leadership. So nurses have been advancing in the clinical roles. They are managing more complexity with patient care. 
nurses have been making all sorts of advancements clinically. Where we haven't seen advances and where it makes a critical difference is that nurses have not been moved into the most executive levels of system management and decision-making. When you take a look at the clinical advances that we've made, oftentimes they're not met with policies that allow the skills of nurses to be being used at their greatest potential. That was really why the World Health Organization designated 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. Nobody, I mean, who would have expected that there would be this global pandemic of such magnitude and scale in terms of the number of people who were impacted, the levels of care that were needed, the numbers of clinicians who would become ill, become disabled, and too many have died. So it it definitely, we have seen the importance of nurses. We've seen the roles that they do play, the value that they bring, the critical nature that nurses are to healthcare systems. Do you think that the whole COVID pandemic and the impact it has on healthcare workers, according to the ICN's analysis based on the data from the National Nursing Association, until June, based on the official figures for a limited number of countries, more than 230,000 healthcare workers have contracted COVID and more than 600 nurses have now died from the virus. So knowing that we already have a shortage of nurses globally and knowing these numbers, do you think this is going to have a negative impact on the interest for the nursing profession, given that I think people are more aware of the risks that the profession has, at least in the current situation. So let me start out where I have hopes. As I have been talking with nurses around the globe and clinicians in general, what I have heard is a level of commitment to care and this appreciation for the ability to problem solve and to have their skills put to work in teams in ways that they haven't had for a long time. I think what spurred that is we've had to dramatically rethink how we deliver care. So when you've got this highly contagious respiratory illness, it has changed the way we set up our units, how we work in teams, who gets to be in our care settings, we can't congregate safely. We can't put people together. I mean, when you think about the way our healthcare systems have been run, the analog portion of it, we invite people to congregate in emergency rooms, in clinics. We can't do that anymore. That increases to the spread of the infection to uninfected patients, to staff, to facility members. So we've had to dramatically rethink that. When you take a look at the way an ICU is run, we have patients put in rooms and all of their IV tubing and all of the pumps on the outside of the rooms so that we can prevent the transmission and also better use the personal protective equipment. So we've had to take a look at how we've been doing things and do it in a very different way. And we've had to figure that out fast. So what I hear from many of the clinicians is that this feels like me being able to use my creative and critical skills to solve problems. And you see very high levels of commitment. They are there in a a space of 
I need to practice safely to keep myself safe, to keep patients safe, to keep my team members safe, to keep my family safe, to keep my community safe. And so this sense of vigilance is exhilarating. And then also on the other side, it's exhausting, absolutely exhausting. When we say a novel coronavirus, I think we're not appreciating the word novel. We don't know how this virus is going to act. We don't know what the treatment should be like, the diagnosis, who has it, how do we move somebody from presumptive to non-presumptive or that they've been confirmed. There is so much that we're learning. And most clinicians, it's the science thrill that they are really enjoying. But at the same time, it's that over being overwhelmed. I don't know what it is that I'm treating. I don't know how lethal this is. I don't know if the treatment that we're giving is the right treatment. Does it increase the likelihood that they're going to improve? Or am I introducing risk that didn't need to be there? And we have a generation that is coming into the workforce who has this very strong sense of purpose. If you want to do work that is meaningful, solving critical healthcare problems, I think in many ways it will drive greater interest. We're seeing the difference in the appreciation that healthcare workers are experiencing. On the side that's less optimistic um, and where I have concerns, we are asking people to do things that we've never done before. They're doing it at a pace, at a volume, at a criticality that is lethal to their mental health and well-being. And what are we doing to make sure that we're building resilience? What are we doing to support those mental health needs? What are we doing to screen to make sure that they have the recovery that they need to be able to take care of themselves. Because if we don't take care of them, they're not going to be strong enough to take care of anybody else. And when I talk with them to understand what is it, you know, where does the level of anxiety or distress come from? And the first thing that they talk about is there's just so much to learn. We don't know what this virus is. We see it and it is, it's vicious. It, it takes people down rapidly. It's, it's a very, very difficult, unpleasant, uncomfortable illness and death. So that's hard. They are concerned for their own well-being. Am I going to contract it? I can't remember a time when we've had so many people going to work before they go to work, spending time with their colleagues, figuring out, do I have a will in place? Have I figured out who's going to take care of my kids if I get sick or I die? They're worried about their families. Am I going to put my family members at risk? They are worried about, are they going to have enough protective equipment? They're worried about the people that they're taking care of and seeing them in so much distress and not being near their loved ones. And I think the other thing that they're worried, that they, that weighs heavily is the emotional distress. Did I do enough? Did I do the right thing? Why is it that my colleague got ill and I didn't? So there are so many different ways that they are suffering on emotional well-being. That's where I have concerns. And then there's the physical exhaustion. This level of work um, with this type of equipment, it is physically demanding. So what are we doing that allows the body to recover as well as the, the mind and then the soul? So do you know 
of any measures that are already in place to cope with all this because that was exactly one of the thoughts that I had uh, just the other day when I was thinking how most people that had the opportunity to shelter in place you know they stayed at home but for physicians for nurses for the healthcare staff it's so how are they going to recover it's not like they can simply go on a holiday or take a few days off because there's just not enough of them. Fortunately, there are researchers, two nurses that come to mind that have been really leaders in the arena of emotional well-being, mental health. One is um, a nurse by the name of uh, Bernadette Melnick, and she's at The Ohio State University. She has beautiful research looking at what is it that we need to do as far as mindfulness and um, mental health well-being to build resilience, evidence-based practice of what that looks like. And another researcher is a nurse by the name of Judy Davidson, who also has been working in that um, area of resiliency training. And her area of focus is on nurse suicide, clinician suicide, but very specifically nurse suicide. And the thing that they both share on this is that it is it is a well-rounded program, first of all. It's not just, you know, let's have a, a crisis line or let's have a one-time intervention. It is a well-rounded program that begins with how do we make sure and take care of you yourself? And it needs to be something that is instituted across a system and part of a culture. So, and it starts with just acknowledging this is really hard work. What do we doing to prepare you so that you can manage the things that you are going to see and experience. There is the next part of when you know that somebody's having a difficult day, that we build in that language and that cultural um, acceptance and cultural habit that says, looks like you're having a really rough day. Why don't we go for a walk? Why don't you take some time to just sit down and, and think or to breathe or to meditate or to cry, to, to express the emotion, to talk about what it is that you're feeling. There's the other part of how we talk about it as, as teams, as, as groups. It's not just that one person who might be having a problem. It really is thoughtfully checking in and saying, this is hard work and giving open forms for people to come in and talk and say, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced, this is how I felt, so that people don't feel alone in that. We then need to have screening. We need to, on a regular basis, be asking people very specific things about their sleep, about their eating, about how they're feeling emotionally, and pick up those people right away to figure out who is at risk, who needs to be talking with a therapist, who needs to be and part of um, group counseling, who needs to step away to do something that isn't maybe quite so intense, figuring out what it is that they need to be doing in that, in the care environment. And, and it's also debriefing, bringing people together as a team and having crisis debriefs and also making it very clear that if you really are struggling, is there a way if you, you know, to be able to put your hand up and you need anonymity, if you need anonymity, we can provide that. And also we need to do it in a way that is helpful and not punitive, not putting people's livelihood, their role or their position or their license at risk. And that has not been 
part of our practice. If you put your hand up and say, I am struggling, um, because usually what happens if you're struggling, you don't want to put your hand up because you put your license or your career at risk, which leads to self-medicating, which leads to a substance use problem, which spirals frequently not in a good way. So how do we start initiating care before we run into a situation that really is more difficult to manage and puts care and that that individual and maybe a, a patient at risk because we haven't given that that team member the safety to put their hand up and say I need help and I need treatment. It almost sounds like that COVID opened up the space to talk about these issues because they just became too strong despite the fact that they were... One of the great things about this particular pandemic is there is no one who is not feeling emotional and mental stress. Whether you're a care provider, it doesn't matter, just any citizen, the uncertainty, the sheltering in place, the separation, the physical distancing, the disruption of your patterns, the maybe putting your job or your career at risk, not being able to see loved ones, having loved ones become ill, being there are just so many layers of, of uncertainty and anxiety. Everybody is feeling it. And by virtue of everybody feeling it, it's been more comfortable to say, I'm struggling. Or to admit, we've been able to more comfortably have the conversation because it's not one person singled out. It's all of us. There's not a single person out there who doesn't feel some level of anxiety. What would you say is the toughest part of nurses' job in an everyday setting? Is it to deal with difficult patients? Is it medication management, which is getting increasingly complex? So I don't know, what is the role of medication management in terms of the stress it causes nurses or the relationships inside the teams, which perhaps are not uh, as good as they could be? From what I'm hearing, where there are places that have been uh, hit hard. It's the volume. It is just this overwhelming, the numbers of people coming in. I think that that's the first thing is that there are just so many. I think the second thing is the severity and the, the deterioration. Intubation is, you know, we, we talk about the ventilators and having somebody intubated. And I think because we're talking about at such scale that we don't really talk about the detail of how frightening and, and what an uncomfortable and difficult thing it is to be intubated and to take care of somebody that's intubated. And then add on to that the volume of the people that you're taking care of that are intubated. Then add on to that the group of people that you're taking care of them. Many of them, they were out walking around, talking, they were with their families, and then all of a sudden they're critically ill and they're having these conversations of, do you think you need to be intubated or how long, what are you willing to go through? And then having these end of life care discussions with people who a week ago were at home with their families or who were at work. And then you add the, the next layer on that. These are nurses who are doing this with people that they haven't developed a relationship who are there by themselves without their family. It's so much to take on. And so you are there that 
person who's witnessing that suffering, you're there treating that suffering, and then you are the connection to that family. It's the cumulative. I can't say that it's any one thing. And yes, it's not so much the medication, it's the treatment overall. Medication is a part of it, but there's not one one thing. It's the accumulation. And this came on so fast. And when you think about some of the nurses who are working in these um, environments, they were redeployed. This is, they may not have worked with respiratory illnesses. They may not have worked in an ICU, but they're being pulled from different settings and said, okay, you got enough experience with critical patients or with uh, respiratory conditions. Let's bring you over here because we just need more people to help us manage. And it might be that your role is now what you're doing is you're moved from one unit and you're over into a swabbing unit. You're in a fever clinic. You are outside of rooms helping to manage donning and doffing, making sure that people put on that equipment safely. And then even more importantly, maybe, is are you taking it off correctly so that in the doffing, you're not increasing the likelihood that people are becoming infected? So I wish I could pinpoint and say, this is the one thing. If we could just really focus in on this, it wouldn't be so stressful. I think it's the cumulative nature But um, if I had to pinpoint maybe one thing that might help, it would be not having people that you're taking care of be so alone. That's a lot to take on to be their care, their care professional and their emotional support team. And I think the other thing is that knowing that there is the, the, the level of empathy, you put yourself in that situation. Here this is, this this person dying alone. And then also that family. You know, you hear the wails of agony when you are on a FaceTime call and helping family to say goodbye to somebody and just feeling that agony. It's a lot to carry, a lot. You are also among the advisory board members of Endwell, whose objective uh, is to address these issues as a multidisciplinary community, bringing together design, technology, health, policy, and activist imagination and expertise in the end-of-life care. And I think, unfortunately, COVID-19 is really leaving a nuclear bomb in this field in the sense that people are dying alone, away from their families, the families can't even even have funerals, doctors and nurses will suffer from PTSD because of the wave of the patients, as you said. So I don't know if there's anything else to add um, regarding your observation as the advisory board member of Endwell, as a nurse who knows how it is to be at the bedside of a sick patient. Is it still too soon to really say anything further because we still, you know, need to digest everything that's happening. I am so proud to be a part of the Endwell community where we're really focused on how do we reimagine a better end of life experience? How do we have conversations that help us to approach the last phase of life with confidence, with comfort, Uh, with clarity, with connection. And this experience of COVID has really catalyzed a lot of those important, and sometimes people think of them as difficult conversations. What I find more and more is that they're beautiful conversations. They're weighty. You know, when you're, when you're talking with a family member and asking them things about what would you like the last sound to be? 
Where would you like that place to be? How, who do you want with you? What are you worried about? What do you not want to have a part of that? I think it's really catalyzed a lot of those conversations. So we go into them better prepared. And one of the things that we've seen with COVID is the role that palliative care is playing right now. So in increasingly what we're seeing in the ICUs is the conversations around do not resuscitate, but also do not intubate. And talking about, you know, if somebody comes in and this is what the prognosis looks like, do you want to be intubated? Maybe you won't go into an ICU. Maybe you will have a more peaceful death. And it seems like there are more people who are having that conversation and they're not even going to the hospital. And so it allows for them to be surrounded by the things that are familiar and and are comfortable. I think it's also helping us to take a look at how we can use our tools. I don't want to say technology. It is technology, but how it is, how is it that we're using tools to bring people together and rethink ritual, to rethink recognition? And right now it's really tough. We're seeing Zoom funerals. We're seeing televised. I think that this is a really, really hard time for particularly the people who are left behind when we don't have those connection points of just the physical comfort of somebody putting their arm around you, somebody being able to see, sit with you and be a witness to those tears. When I think about the inability to gather as a community for funerals, I have to say that I am concerned and wondering what questions we need to ask of our community and maybe even our country. Is this a moment where we need to think about a national experience of mourning and bereavement? We have Memorial Day. We have Veterans Day where we set aside solemn moments to think about sacrifice, to think about loss. And we find ways to celebrate life. We, lives well lived. So I'm looking forward to seeing what those look like. I know it's a need and I have great confidence in the designers and our mental health professionals and our social workers um, to help us come up with what is going to be healing. Which kind of brings us to gathering different ideas for solving same or different uh, problems. You worked as a nurse for a long time and you recently became the host of See You Now podcast where you give listeners the opportunity to hear from nurses at the forefront of healthcare and innovation. So given that you were in the profession yourself, I wonder did anything surprise you in these discussions? You know, did you discover something uh, new? Because when we are working in a certain field, we can quickly have the sense that we know more than we know. We lose the curiosity of finding out what we don't know yet. So what's been your experience in terms of learning about the position of nurses so a couple things. One, I remain clinically active. I am much more on the public health space. One of the areas that I am have such a strong commitment and fire about our immunizations, vaccinations, making sure that we are preventing uh, vaccine-preventable illnesses and deaths. So I, I am still actually clinically active and much more over on the public health side. One of the things that isn't really well known about nurses is the broad range of places that they work, conditions that they treat, problems that they see, problems that they're solving. I think one of my 
favorite pieces around hosting the See You Now podcast is discovering just how many problems there are to be solved. And then finding these nurses who understand and have made friends with that problem. Can you name any examples? Intimate partner violence. You know, I, I know that from my clinical work in working in the emergency department. I am meeting nurses who are looking at this problem um, in ways that are out in the community. They're looking at it in an individual level. They are looking at it on a community level. They look at at a policy level. They see where it shows up in workplaces, in schools. Their, their level of research and discernment around what programs look like, how we help people to solve that problem from their own mental health as well as their physical health. So that's been one area. Vaccinations. Uh, Melody Butler, the the network of nurses that she's put together, Nurses Who Vaccinate is the organization that she has um, built and grown. This is a group of nurses who are available online to meet people where they are and build trust and confidence and, and answer questions and help people to better understand why they're uncertain and get the information that they need about making decisions for their children's health or for their parents' health to figure out, you know, understand the science of vaccines and seeing how, like I said, she responds to them online, but she's also figured out ways to go and meet people in person. If it's at a park, if it's at a library, if it's at a coffee shop, if it's at their kitchen table, she helps to build trust to understand what it is that people are doing. Didn't know that people were out there doing that. Game designers. How are we using gaming mechanics to help people understand their conditions and how to take care of them, whether it's diabetes, sexually transmitted infections, managing asthma, food sensitivities, school nurses. Oh my goodness. How are they helping children in so many different ways to be healthy and ready to learn and managing these complex living environments that children find themselves in, whether it's food insecurity, housing insecurity, reading readiness, unstable home lives because a parent has lost a job, somebody in their family has a chronic illness. Children show up in so many different ways. Looking at how nurses are intervening in making sure that they have their healthy and they're having their very best pregnancies all of the different ways that they are helping them to be emotionally prepared, physically prepared, financially prepared, figuring out their support systems, helping them with their parenting, helping them with breastfeeding, so many different, toothbrushing, oral care. Oh my goodness. I just, figuring out, just seeing so many different challenges, whether it's a headache clinic for people who have um, long-term neurology problems, Parkinson's, MS. There are so many different challenges. Sexual assault. How are nurses figuring out how to sensitively and securely and legally do a sexual assault exam and then putting together a network of nurses? I'm just extraordinarily impressed by the numbers of things that people out in the world are contending with. 
Sonsiel is a global organization with the goal of positioning uh, the nursing profession to participate in developing solutions and increasing nursing's influence as leaders of healthcare innovation. Given your broad overview and uh, knowing that you traveled a lot in your career, how much of this kind of thinking are you observing around the world? Because when I did the research and was looking for speakers for this special series with nurses, my impression was that the awareness that nurses can be more than just caregivers at the bedside is highest in the US, whereas it's not that prevalent elsewhere yet. I think it's uneven. Yeah, Yes, very much in the US. We are seeing nurses move into greater levels of leadership and responsibility. Where we have a ways to go is in the policy realm. Um, when you take a look at other parts of the world, oftentimes the ministries of health, where they have a minister of health, frequently those are nurses. And in the US, we haven't gotten to that level. So it's it's interesting that there are places where I think in the US, the level of leadership that nurses are assuming where they are in those roles. It, it is higher in some areas than you would see in the U.S. in outside of the U.S. But there is a very specific level where I think other countries have made uh, much more advancement in that. And specifically in the African continent, where you see a lot of leadership and innovation, it is with nurse managed clinics. And a big part of that is that. For so many people in this on this planet, the highest level of care that they're ever going to receive is going to be a nurse. So those community health clinics, they are absolutely run and managed by nurses. So they do have leadership in very critical ways because there's just such a physician shortage. Many of these countries just don't have an educational infrastructure that turns out the numbers of physicians that that population needs. And then when you take a look at the density and where those those physician resources are targeted, you just have enormous numbers of, of populations where there just aren't any physicians. So by virtue of the fact that there aren't physician resources there, nurses are absolutely the leaders and the decision makers. Where I see a lot of leadership, Canada and Australia, New Zealand, particularly when it comes to primary care and midwifery, healthy babies being delivered, that is very much dominated by nurse midwives. And so that model of care is and and those early days, you know, the the first thousand days of life, that's where nurses have a huge impact, and I think that that's stronger in places outside of the U.S. rather than inside of the U.S. So if we try to focus more on nurses themselves, you described in what ways they're helping the communities, the environment, the workplace they are present in, but what about them? So what are today still the biggest untapped needs for them, you know, for them to be able to do their job in the best possible manner, for them to be more enabled? What's the biggest obstacle for them to do their job to best of their abilities? That they are underestimated. For the most part, what I find is that people really do not know what nurses do. I don't think that people have an awareness of the training 
you know, what that training pathway looks like, how well-trained they are. I mean, when you think about it, you've got nurses that everything that can go wrong with an adult, they'll take care of it. So when you think about any system, your neurologic system, your uh, respiratory system, your cardiac system, digestive system, there's going to be a nurse who's focusing in on that. If you think about the things that are specific to women's health, you're going to have nurses that are focused on that. If you think about the well-being and illnesses of children, there are nurses who are focused on that. The part that I think is so untapped and so overlooked is nurses' ability to manage systems, to be at the system level. I think that we've done a good job of saying nurses can certainly manage these things clinically, but where systems and the public is missing out when they do not harness the expertise of nurses to lead at the system level, to be innovators in putting in programs that meet the needs of aging populations, of how do we have the healthiest possible babies out there? How do we help people die peacefully with dignity? And I think the public is really missing out because they're not fully tapping into that skill set and insights. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. <laughs>